got to take a rest on the porch. Imagination sets in. Pretty soon I'm singing. Do, 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 looking out by my back door. Look like a hobo. Mm. I love that I'm just visually aging over the course of the Kush vlog as I'm like, my life force is being drained out of me. It's good. Sick transit Gloria. Need to remember that at all times. Maybe the most important thing you need to remember. All is fleeting. Change is the only constant. Hashtag second law of thermodynamics. But if you really internalize that, like if you have that be your emotional response to all uh, moments, it has a cumulative effect because it really is the only way to free yourself shackles of, uh, of, of human misery, suffering, you know, caused by a desire that can never, ever be fulfilled. And it's so funny because it's like, it's, it, this concept is very much uh, associated with Buddhism, but I would argue that it's at the heart of every fucking religious and secular philosophical tradition. It's the only way to square human existence is to detach yourself from the wheel of desire. Because I think it's been pretty, in my mind, it is as proven a metaphysical uh, precept as there is. That the engine of human suffering is desire because desire cannot be fulfilled. If you don't like that in uh, saffron robes, well, take it from one of the Dianes of, uh, of the French Academy. That's the basis of Lacanian uh, um, psychology. The basis of Lacanian psychology is the same insight. And Christianity, uh, the logic of Christianity follows a similar path. Like, what is sin? Distance from God, but desire. Oh, shit. I got to change the, uh, I got to change what the, uh, what the event is or else this thing doesn't upload correctly. It fucks up the metadata. And apparently uh, Twitch doesn't like it when you misna- mislabel things. Don't know what the deal is there. But I can do it midstream, so I can change horses. There we go. I don't even know what that game is, by the way. I've literally never heard of it. I've usually at least heard of the shit that they play on here. I've literally never heard of that. Splitgate, are you talking about my ass? So anyway, uh, the antidote to that spiritually is to essentially diffuse the emotional connection you have to the experience of not getting what you want. Because if in every relationship to an object of desire, you're miserable because you're not getting it. 
You get, you're seeking a thing in your head that by definition cannot happen. And that means that at every point you are stuck on the tenterhooks between this thing being not enough of something or too much of something else and, and the deficiency being what you're actually connecting yourself to and what you're actually experiencing. So that means even as your body is feeling pleasure, your mind is screeching against it. It's like the fucking parking brake on your fucking bodily engine. Like if your car is a, if your body is a car, you're putting a fucking parking brake on it because you are having actual physical pleasure, and your brain is connecting it to this miserable condition instead of just feeling the pleasure. The only way you can, you can do that is if you are not fixated and captured by the seeking of the desire in the moment of pleasure. If you can experience things for what they are, well, reminding yourself that this is not the world, that this is not the sum of existence, that you are not disconnected from that which is around you. There is no selfish pleasure that you can accumulate. And therefore, you can live to pursue that, that social goal. And then in the course of doing that, you will experience physical pleasure. And you can connect it to that frequency. You connect that physical pleasure that you experience pursuing a life earnestly uh, uh, that is fueled by an awareness of your uh, disconnection to your desires and your subsequent connection to everyone around you and everything around you. Like there is a frequency in every moment that is trying to harmonize our bodily, our body, like what our body feels with the world around us, to, to harmonize it, to bring it into a uh, 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 I keep saying harmony, but it is a frequency thing. Like, I mean, I don't want to sound too much like a hippie, but like there is truth to them, these notions of vibrations and stuff. And like, cause we are all just condensed energy. You know, that's what mass is. We all know that that's Einstein. Basically we're all tuned. We're all vibrating at a frequency. We're literally vibrating. We're made up of little vibrating rocks. So there's a resonant. You're trying to at all remote resonate it between the world around you and your body and your body. You're trying to do to negotiate the, gap between the two that your brain basically makes up in order for to pilot you around. But the thing is, the world that we're experiencing in that conscious perception is not the world. It is the portion of the world that we have whittled down in order to differentiate ourselves from the worst of it in order to move it, in order to try to survive. But what survival means changes as our conditions change. And as we get out of equilibrium socially with uh, the world around us, we lose our uh, ability to reason towards harmony. We can only reason away from it. Because now we are on a, we've, we've created a uh, fucking polarity between uh, the world around us, the people around us, and the biome in general, that we shape all of our social structures around reinforcing it. 
Like, I have been a hypochondriac my whole adult life. Uh, and I am dealing with it much better than I used to be. But I'm, I have a very identifiable and easy trauma that I can use to sort of facilely describe my understanding of myself in the world. And that is that I had a absolutely freak traumatic spinal injury when I was 17 years old. There's a deer after my dad died. And it put me in the hospital for a couple of months. It left me wheelchair bound. Uh, and eventually I had to like learn to walk again. And I got to a point where I could walk, which is good, but I have a limp and I also have something called Brown Saccard syndrome where my right leg and right side below my waist is numb all the time. Like it's, uh, like it is, um, on fire basically. Like my leg is on fire. Like it feels like it's dipped in like a very cold, like a ice bank or like it's really, really um, asleep, like pins and needles. And, but it has full mobility. Like I got a big calf and it can drag my weaker left side around. My weaker left side uh, is, has more sensation, but is still tingly, but is much weaker. And so that got to a level where I could walk, but I still felt this. And I've had like, you know, accompanying problems with that, like with my GI system uh, and other things affected by this. And that has been my entire adult life. And very shortly after I get to college, and I'd had a few of these feelings before. I'd always been kind of a hypochondriac as a little kid. And maybe that was like my body, like, clenching up and getting ready for the thing that it subconsciously knew was coming. I don't know. That might be a little too far, but that I think, you know, in my mind, I think maybe that's the case. Like my body, you know, there was like a, there was a, there was a, uh, an eventuality that was going to happen. There was an infection I was going to get that my body knew before I did because it was more attuned because I'm more not seeing the world. I'm seeing this fraction of the world through this keyhole that is determined by my hedonistic desires, what I think is good for me in the moment, what I think is good for me, my intellectualization, not my body as a uh, reactive organism, but as a self-considered idea of self, the bootstrapped consciousness that comes from sufficient degree of, um, of processing ability. Like that's what it boils down to. There's an inflection point. When a biological organism reaches an, a, a sufficient degree of, um, of uh, computing power, like the ability to um, turn things into symbols and then have those symbols stand in for things and then therefore being more efficient in analyzing uh, information because we have reduced the, like, uh, the, the, inefficient, the efficiency of the exchange. You know what I mean? I don't know if this is once again too crazy. This might be too out there. I can reel any of this back. None of this is necessarily canon. I'm talking through it. Abstraction. Thank you. The word is abstraction that I'm looking for. The brain reaches an ability where it can move through the signals that it's getting fast enough that an inflection point is reached. And after that inflection point, you have a sufficient abstraction. Symbols. 
to allow for communication that is so fast, so instantaneous, that it gets ahead of causality. It gets ahead of the fucking rocks in our body. It gets ahead of the clash, of the symbol clash, of just constant uh, 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 energy just dissipating out through the universe, the extinguishment of, uh, of all uh, entropy within a system over time. And that means we can actually pilot a machine of flesh from a cockpit that is just this fantasy, an abstracted version of a physical body, a soul, a fucking soul. Let's call it that created through a fully physical material process. And then for, to a certain degree, um, So what that has to do then, what that consciousness has to seek, for everything to be perfect, for the world to maintain itself as a homeostatic environment, a natural biome, all you need is for humans to have a sufficient degree of abstraction to prevent themselves from dying right away uh, uh, and to uh, protect themselves as individuals and others that they can cooperate with at a symbolic level at the level of technological communica- at the, uh, the technology of communication, the abstraction of symbolic, first within the brain and then between brains. But it's between those brains and then the world around it. And at the tribal level of social organization, the, that we know for a fact is stable because there are still people practicing it in the current moment. There are, un, there are un, um, untouched tribes in the Amazon. And in Indian uh, 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 islands, where where uh, where tribal civilization, like pre pre verbal civilization, persists, or not pre verbal, there's language, but there's like not written language. That which is the real inflection point, because you get a first degree of uh, an inflection point within a brain to give you sufficient um, uh, ability to to use abstraction, and then. You use language first internally and then externally. And then that external language is at this new inflection point. And you can create a homeostatic social organism where the interests of the individual and the interests of all are aligned. And that means that you will struggle in an atmosphere that will be painful and miserable and make things feel bad to live because there is this, there's these sensors that you're hitting. Ouch, 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 ouch. Like you're actually being battered by these. And that is pushing you towards more efficient uh, social organization that allows for a homeostatic, the, 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 a muscle moving, a social organism moving through time and space. And it will stay in uh, a harmonic relationship with the world, just like there's a harmonic relationship with Gorillas and fucking bonobos and lions and every other species. There's a homeostatic relationship, which is all you need. That's morality. That's the good. If you want to say what is good, what is what are what are our most uh, you know the highest social value? You can strip them all of uh, any kind of pretense. It is that. It is a homeostatic relationship where there is pain in life, there is misery, there is death, but it is death that is um, 
insufficiently traumatic to make it impossible to live knowing it might happen to you. That's what I mean, is that knowing you're going to die is central to consciousness. But sitting with the knowledge of death is alienating and traumatizing in a way that pulls you towards hysterical acts of self-destruction that are short-term thinking, attemptingly trying to feel sufficient physical pleasure to block out that air raid siren in the back of your head that is your conscious knowledge of death. What blocks that siren out can be indulgent pleasure or an expansive, socially constructed idea of pleasure. And as long as that dominates the social fabric and the social technology of like a pre, uh, a pre-agricultural civilized human relationship, you have the state of nature as it is conceived in all of its goodness. Yes, red in tooth and claw, red in tooth and claw in that people die and there's misery but there's also pleasure and going towards death is not racked with the anxiety that produces the denial of death and the social neuroses that come from a denial of death. As that means we're going to have pleasure and pain in life, but we're going to live in such a way that all the pleasure is contributed to all the good things in life. Hey, This world, this homeostatic relationship, this social organism, this thing that is me but also beyond me, this thing's pretty good because all that I I get that I love comes from it. My food comes from it. My safety comes from it. My entertainment and pleasure and camaraderie and physical sensations of pleasure associated with intercourse, those uh, all are associated with this social order. So that means that there is something more than me. That means that there is a reason to live beyond the self. And that means that one's dying is not the end of one because you really do imagine, imagine, you imagine that you live in something that is beyond you, which means that your death will be a dream of your heaven, a dream of heaven, which is your, your understanding of the world that you were never a part of, but had to pretend you were for a while to get through it before coming back to total awareness that you were always one thing and that all that fear was for nothing. The, little, the, the more harmonious your social order, the least amount of that uh, misery is going to build up, that bad karma if you want to get crude about it. And that means that you don't destroy your environment and you don't destroy your social bonds. You cooperate and you get uh, the benefits of the environment you're in. And you push yourself towards getting a better environment. But then there are exogenous ecological shocks. And those shocks, changes in the physical reality that you're, or the physical order that you have created a homeostatic relationship with, like, okay, if we live here and we hunt for X, we will be able to get Y amount of food, be able to sustain Y amount of social order. But the problem, the reason that this is not heaven is that because of the fact that we have a giant globe with people on it all over the place, because we're broken up geographically, it means different people encounter different uh, uh, ecological conditions and then have to respond to them differently. And because of the lay of the land, the literal lay of the land as humanity spread from Africa and encountered like 
the traumas of the, the genetic bottleneck that led to the deaths of all but 5,000 human beings. You know that, guys? You guys know about that? Talk about accelerating, uh, like, selection, natural selection towards the ability to reason around your environment. But that requires focusing on something else than the world around you or the people around you. Focusing yourself around a self-interested individual concept that can then reason for its own benefit. Because it's eventually going to have to make a choice. Do I fight for everybody or do I try to save myself? And the harder things get, the more that way of living is encouraged. The more the way, the way, the more, the, the way that that way of thinking is encouraged. And that means you get innovations and those innovations create hierarchies of social domination that make it so that you don't feel like all the good things in the world come from your social order. All the bad things in the world come from your social order. And then we create a culture, a superstructure. When we talk about the superstructure, we're talking about all the social customs and rituals and technologies that allow us to tell ourselves that the thing that is making us miserable is actually making us happy. And that creates a locked-in situation where human beings from this point on have, have their polarities of consciousness switched so that they're no longer perceiving the world as it is. They're perceiving the shadow version of it, where up is down, down is up, personal hedonic pleasure in the narrow sense, not in the sense of equilibrium with all, but just, just that the vulgar sense pleasance, pleasure of not working, of letting other people work, of thinking with your mind and, and working with symbols instead of being out in the field. Because you need more people to be able to make decisions from a point of symbolic uh, dexterity that they're going to have to spend time away from doing shit that uses your hands and that is takes your whole bodily's attention. They have to be in their head more. And then you have to create a social order that gives them more access to more free time to do that, and that creates a mechanism of uh, of social order that becomes self-sustaining, but breaks up into these pieces because we are all just tribal organisms organisms operating from a social um, like we believe that our tribe is us, but our tribe is defined by those who are not our tribe, and they in those other tribe they understand the world through the prism where they are, their social organism is the source of all that's good in the world. And they see through a glass darkly at the other, and that tells them what bad is. And so there is war between them. And then the war is won by that society that uses technology of control and oppression most effectively, which means capitalism will emerge as a weapon that will then be used on behalf of this social order. But it's Self, its rational pursuit of its self-interest is its long-term destruction, is its annihilation, because there is a, it is no longer operating within a biome the way that the hum, early human civil uh, uh, order was, uh, uh, was oriented. We are in a reverse relationship with, with the natural world. And so that means that all the pleasure we accumulate as humans, we gain at the expense we create surplus, we draw surplus from the flesh of the earth, from the blood of hu fellow humans, other animals. We destroy others. 
And what makes it feel good for us to do that is that those of us making the decision to do so are warm and comfortable, are gaining pleasure from the world around them, even though it's killing them. And they can feel it. They can feel it in their bones. They can feel it. That's the whole of all of us. That's the thing that drives the fear of death is this deficit. Because when we die, it means that our consciousness is going to be smashing against a brick fucking wall of otherness. That means our, our deaths will be miserable. The last moments that could expand into infinity, if you think about it, are going to be fueled by this, this fantasy of separation instead of being drawn into a harmony that will create mindscapes and, and emotional experiences of pleasure beyond words, by definition beyond words, that then become the last Echoing sense that then becomes the universe. It's not the end of anything. It's the beginning of everything. And you feel that. You can make that. You can conjure that with your mind. Instead of conjuring this hell world we've created. This Gnostic prison. This iron fucking prison. And so the seeks, the search for consciousness, the struggle for consciousness, is to rip yourself away from this matrix of desire. And reorient yourself and to therefore be in your body. And the thing about that, I spent 40 years of my life as a, as a miserable, kind of cruel um, m- narcissist, which, I, I mean, there's no other words for it. Because my body is a constant red alert. There's a... I have a, most, if you don't have constant pain like this, this is where like the spoonies might have a point about disability. If you don't have that red alert going off in your head all the time, it's much easier to orient your pleasures. It's much more easy, it's much more, it's much easier to notice that the good things in your life come from people and not from selfish indulgence. And if you have that on your, it's, so hard to be in your body. It's so hard to be in your body. You want to be anywhere else. And the internet came along and allowed me to be anywhere else. And I just, and what happens is, is that my body's filled with pain all the time. I've got things going off all over the place and not just in my lower half. Like I have because I've trained my brain to feel things certain places. So I have bodily sensations everywhere. And every time I feel one, it feels like this red alert that I'm going to die. And because I have, in my mind, so associated death with extinguishment, that is a feeling of pure fear running down my back at all times that I basically have to tune into or tune out to some degree. And I tuned it out for the first half of my life with the most selfish indulgences that I could conjure up. And so, like, I've been trying to change that, and I feel like recognizing mother these patterns has helped me do that, but it hasn't changed the fact that I have these feelings all the time. And so, I, and I still have that fear, but now I don't just try to ignore the fear. I channel it, I catch it, and I think it through, and I reason it back to its irrationality, because at the end of the day, I have to use my brain because of how much I have... 
isolated myself from the world around me. So that's why I have to sit with it. And it does feel like I'm kind of like balancing on a spike between like the part of me that just wants to fall off into into fear and indulgence and then the part of me that really is comforted, that is grounded. Like there is that love, you know, and the things associated with that, like that, the thing that is like my pleasure aligned with the pleasure of the world around me and not seeking to, uh, to indulge for my own sake in a narrow sense. Because the thing about that is that stuff's bad for me, right? Like that stuff, the stuff that feels good because of the fact that I live in the fucking Demiurge's uh, uh, dungeon lair. That stuff that feels good is bad, like actually bad for my body because my body is myself. Like there's no, you don't, you, you are a body. You don't have a body. That's one of the things that I spent 40 years fucking trying to avoid confronting. So it's about balancing like the, the, just the, the lazy need to like have some sort of reach, some sort of, uh, self because, you know, I am still here, you know, and it feels like it's very, you can't hold like a, a totally, it's very, it requires a, a sort of a manic intensity to drive you to a certain degree of uh, harmony in a way that I don't think is sustainable. So I feel like I'm finding a balance where I can be aware enough to be, have faith that in a very short period of time I could confront death. Uh, through a clear lens. And then the knowledge that like the road I'm on is one where over time, my moment to moment sense of that, that relief will be greater even as my body decays. And for me, this is the chief, this is the chief uh, rejoinder, or this is the, 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 this is the fundamental rebuke of the black pill, is what I'm saying. Is that if you say, fuck it, I'm just going to seek my most selfish pleasure, which is all you can seek. This is what I'm saying. The only thing you can try to get in this world is your selfish pleasure. It's set up so that that's all that gets rewarded. That's all you can seek. Now, some of that selfish pleasure is necessary. Like, you know, hey, everybody's got to eat, so eat things you like and that are good and tasty. You know, everybody's got to recreate, do something that's fun and maybe cost some money. Like you, there is some degree of it that is, that is necessary, but after a while, it's going to feel not as good. 
It's going to feel less enjoyable. You're going to, however your brain defines that red light. And for me, it's my physical body and senses within it. And for other people, it's different things. It's different triggers. They social life can only, if you pursue it uh, selfishly, can only, only be self-destructive because it's wired around your desires, which are unattainable and exist for you to distract yourself at a fundamental level mentally from an irresolvable contradiction of, of morta- mortality. And so f- from even the most, this is, this is why I say it is, this is the re- re- rebuke to the black pills. The black, black pill, black pill claims to be the final ultimate expression of the rat of the rational mind pursuing its self-interest in the universe saying like, this is the rational point of view. And I am saying, no, it is actually fundamentally irrational. In it's in, it, it is the death drive. It is the, it is the impolarity at the heart of our cultural relationship to, to alienated social structure, uh, an alienated social order. And that drives us psychically through history. So over time, you will be able to get less pleasure from the short-term pleasures you seek, no matter what they are, even if they're just psychic, even if it's just schadenfreude, even if it's just sadism at the expense of others, it will still lose power over time because your body will age. The, 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 the circuits will get overtaxed. And also, because you can feel yourself aging, your light of the, the red light, like the, the bodily, like the pains are mounting up. Like there's more twinges. There's more difficulties. You can't exert as much. And you feel that. It feels like an actual sensation that has to be ignored. And it can only be ignored by doing what feels, feels fun in the most narrow uh, way. But your ability to enjoy it, like the actual senses of it will be reduced. You'll always be seeking a higher version of it that you can't get to. And the riddle of history of solved that Mark Marx referred to socialism as the riddle of history solved. And this is how it and how that is true is that what communism does by taking an advanced capitalist modes of production and socializing them creating technologies of co of consent extending through an entire social body of humans, not a particularized tribal arrangement in the pre industrial pre agricultural world, but an actual human race that could then use technology, the technologies of culture to have people working towards a self conception of pleasure that aligns their basest self-interest, like just taste good, feel good, feel comfortable, feel uh, not not taxed, feel engaged, just harmony, like I said, harmony with the world. They associate that with the fucking system because they benefit from it. They are not exploited by it or they don't benefit from it and feel guilty about that and have to distract themselves from it and convince themselves with a fucking pageantry of culture that actually these people have it coming and uh, actually they like it. 
which is a fucking lie that has to be repeated over and over again to keep you uh, inside the tent. And why it works is because you're always gorging yourself. Gorging yourself on pleasures that are at the expense of other people. It's either that or you're directly being exploited and you feel you are cooperating in a system that is destroying you. So you have to seek explanation for why that is. And that's what our politics becomes. Our politics becomes this darkling path where we're trying to blame someone for why things are the way they are. And it can't be the system itself. It has to be some puppet show version of the system that ref- that is just an inversion. And that is why all politics in the pre in the pre in the era before the labor movement emerged were the war between these uh, imp- self imposed uh, social orders that could not see the humanity beyond their campfires because their technology of self allowed them to really believe that they were part of something. But that something had to have a limit just because of the limit of imagination. Because the, the, because the, uh, the level of abstractions of the social concepts that you live with was lower. And capitalism is revolutionary because it boosts dramatically the abs- the, the uh, ability to abstract which becomes computing power but what that computing power is powered by is our consent to a system that is now global and to a conception of humanity that is in many structural senses conceived of as global and that it is marked by a condition of rela- of relationship to production where there is one group who experiences life as a deficit of pleasure and attributes it to capitalism and a, and a overruling class who feels a surplus of pleasure at the expense of the other class. Now the working class emerges as the protagonists of history precisely because their social condition of labor is such that they can produce horizontally uh, uh, generated, internally consistent social membranes. Like they can turn into their own, uh, uh, like their own tribe. They can, they can become a tribal in the way that the ruling class always is. The ruling class wins because they are tribal before everybody else. They understand, hey, look, we got a good thing going here. We have a surplus of pleasure. It's pretty good, right? Let's keep that. And that means that they they steer the social ship towards their continued uh, pleasure, which means that when inevitably an ecological uh, intervention comes and breaks up their relationship, their homeostatic relationship to their environment, uh-oh, the fucking Titanic sinks because the the wheel of state is being pulled by people who have a fundamentally misaligned understanding of best interest. They think that their enjoyment of surplus pleasure is self-interest, but that's not. That's just the thing that gets them in the saddle of this machine. Capitalism creates the fantasy 
that it could be sustained indefinitely by increased technology. But the technology is not going to increase because it cannot take into account the externalities. Because this system is being chewed up and spit out. But all of the cries of pain that we would have heard if we were at the tribal level, we have ignored. Because we're too busy in our symbolic orders. We're too captured by our abstracted social reality. Of course, this is, this is why fascism is a response to the crisis of capitalism. Let's go back to that. But communism, socialism re- recognizes, a self-interested, self-aware working class realizes that, no, no, all these fucking labels, like countries and fucking nationalities and ethnicities and languages this is, and, and religions, this is all bullshit. There's these motherfuckers who are sitting around and there's us who are doing everything. I want to feel good and we can feel good, but only if we work together because that's all we have against them. They will always beat us because they have the technology. And Marx is, Marx can never be, Marx can never have, honestly, I don't think Marx can ever have said to have been wrong about anything because he recognized the dynamic in a totality. Details are sort of beside the point. Even in the early work, in the fucking manifesto, they say that the end of the clash of classes is either the triumph of one or the common ruin. And if common ruin is on the table, then you have the totality of the dynamic of the working class emerging out of capitalism to challenge capitalism. Because what you have is, but, but the reason that this is tele, here's the reason that this is actually teleological, but the teleology is correct. People say, well, that means that Marx is saying that this is determined. He is, it is determined. But the reason that we assume that uh, the uh, working class will win is simply that the way that Marx understands this process, this cycle, is that, well, you got a human civilization come into being, defined by class conflict, destroyed by its internal contradictions, in, in interaction with its environment. And then a new one emerges with a new ruling class. That it is a survival. It's a Darwinian process. You're whittling yourself a fucking ruling class that can wield power effectively. That's what Europe was post Black Death. Was essentially a fucking wheatstone for the windling of a ruling class that could actually wield technological power in conflict with one another. Symbols sharp enough to create a nation. 19th century nationalism was the real fuel of capitalism, the real social lubricant. And so we've reached the point where, okay, we're going to get the conflict. The reason the ruling, the working class is going to win this is because solidarity in the face of collapsing social conditions will beat the undermined social order that uh, can no longer be sustained. Like Marx understands this, the ruling class will create a structure that will be undone by the end of its relationship to its environment. That the way every other one has, that has to happen. Because as I said, 
the people within it, even the smartest ones, even the ones with the most pure hearts, are having their actions filtered through a system that contributes to co- to collusion with an order of technology that can create literally a homeostatic relationship between a global human race and the earth. That's what we're talking about. A tribal level of homeostatic uh, uh, equilibrium with the world. What that mean, And that meaning a corresponding destruction of the structures of trauma and misery that have inscribed human civilization. That's what is the alternative to a doomed capitalism. Because as we said, it can only pursue the interests of those within it. But that assumes that those externalities will not come back. They can't be priced in. The reason this is teleological, though, is that unlike every other time that cycle has gone through, we have reached a point where capitalism, being so efficient at accumulating surplus, has fatally and critically destabilized a fully enclosed global ecosystem, which has never happened before. Every other civilization that ever fell fell in a clo- in, in, in a uh, limited geographic area where its ability to uh, dis- destroy uh, uh, the equilibrium of, of resources was uh, limited. And then other civilizations w- came in and filled the gap and, and restored the balance. Capitalism can accumulate so much surplus so effectively through such an uh, intense abstraction a machine of technology that this is the last, this is the end of the cycle. This is, we're getting off the wheel one way or the other. Now, does that mean that, oh, we're all, we're doomed. The world's going to end. No, because before we get to a total extinguishing point, there will be a collapse of capitalism and there will be a, scattering of humans across a a a a, a civil a civil civilizational order where you have pockets of remaining uh advanced uh, technological civil, civilization but then huge swaths of of post apocalyptic uh uh destruction you will have the same sort of malthusian shock that you've seen time and again uh destroy civilizations when they get uh, fatally stuck when one class is uh is in is uh at the as well you it always collapsed when one class is uncontested for rule feudalism in Europe was at a fatal point of stasis because the uh the feudal rulers uh had reached a a uh, situation within their uh, uh uh social within their closed um political orders the states of Europe being ruled by feudalism were getting to the point where their resources could not sustain the order that they uh, had created. But there was no other class to fight them because the tools of the bourgeois had not yet been forged. Black Death breaks that up. Capitalism comes out of the, out of the fucking, uh, the new, the, 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 the burned over uh, 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 forest floor, like after a cleansing wildfire comes through. And that was in Europe, though. That was contained in Europe. The rest of the world kept going. And even in Europe, it was... It still left half the population and the deaths were not like the deaths were distributed in a way that the social structure maintained itself. And then humans came back up. 
reattached themselves to the cart of technological progress and built capitalism. Now it's reached a fatal, conf- a failed stasis because after being challenged by the working class in the 20th century, 19th and 20th century, capitalism is now in the same position as feudalism was in pre-Black Death Europe, uncontested and bestriding a, a, uh, a enclosed and uh, doomed uh, relationship to the bio, a disequilibrium that has reached a point of critical crisis, which means something will come through to break it up. It can't be within human human uh, civil order. And the challenge of the fucking human in this moment is if you know that, how knowing that, how do you go forward? Because what is the point of all this yakety yak about politics online if we're not trying to understand the world in a way that lets us act in a way that lets us feel a given way, a way that is in harmony? That is all that the this part of the internet can be. If it, it'll be entertainment to a degree, but that's the fatty part. That's the that's the um, that's the empty calories. There's got to be nutrients to it, or else do something more fun. You know, watch sports. I think for a lot of people for a long time, I certainly thought that this could be trying to move the wheel of history politically, but it can't. We're in this uh, fatal uh, cultural loop. We have to act differently. And that means putting out, uh, engaging with with political uh, culture in a way that drains you of that emotional connection the politics as such. But the thing is, that's not black pill because how do you act? How do you act? And guess what? The answer to how do you act is also how we're going to build the thing that beats capitalism. That's also what's going to come next. That's going to be the fucking roots. The purifying fire leaves this new uh, arrangement where a new group of people with a new relationship to each other engage with uh, a uh, technological order of abstractions and symbols from a new position, a, a advanced, a further advanced historical position, one that we can't even conceive of on this end of it. These will have been people who lived through the destruction of capitalism. And in so doing, all of the superstructural bullshit that held this thing together is going to burn away. My God, how much of the internet is going to be gone? And those people at that point are going to have to fucking build something. And they're going to be building something with tools, physical, technological, mental, that no other human has ever had. And by doing that, it's going to take time. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be horrible. They're going to get to a homeostatic relationship with the human bio. And that is the ultimate triumph of communism as Marx understood it. And in my mind, Yes, it's teleological, but it is correct because it understands the limits of teleology. Because we have created a global system for the first time, which means that this cycle can no longer be abetted. Every one of these uh, social orders that collapsed had cycles within them that powered them through time until they could no longer be sustained. Contradictions fuel the burn through the thing. Contradictions are the engine of history because they're the engine of human action in a civilized society. 
the contradictions between feeling good and feeling good, the contradiction between having uh, enjoying the surplus of others and uh, having your surplus alienated from you. A social ritual of turning those sins into fucking uh, virtues. So anyway, I'm always burning with something. I'm a tuning fork that is out of harmony with the world. My frequency, my vibe is fucked. And that's not going to change. Can't change. My back is as good as it's ever going to be. And my body is going to feel worse over time. No way. No matter what I do, no matter, I mean, I honestly am not that worried about dying in the near future because I have a pretty good, you know, hail Midwestern constitution. I have very good, like, levels, you know, for uh, all that shit. And, like, you know, my family history is pretty good. You know, Crispins, Jagamins, they relatively, they real, they live long and they sure as hell don't, like, um, aren't any um, fitter than I am. Most of them are far, far worse uh, shape than I and have lived and are much, and are old as hell. But it's still going to be more pain, and you know the likelihood it's something is going to get higher until it is something. Probably, unless something happens fast, that's going to be it. And now I live my life feeling that, but instead of trying to ignore it, reason with it, and and doing that makes me always choose uh, the thing that ha- makes me feel good about the world I'm in. Makes me feel good. Makes me feel good. Doesn't have the tuning. Doesn't have that tuning fork going off. Doesn't have that red light going off. Doesn't have the check engine light. That is just. That is just a quiet, pleasant moment. And the more of those I accumulate, and the more I associate that feeling with that thought, the more that I am going to know that I can face a final judgment with a clear eye. I lose my need for those things that are bad for me and those things that are bad things to do to others that are morally wrong. Like not at a, not at a, not, I mean, just in the sense that they're not helping anybody. And in fact, they depend on other people not uh, being hurt. And that does at a fundamental level mean collaborating with capitalism. Like that is part of it. Like if you have a, if you're civilized enough, is this is the thing. If your life is mostly miserable, if your life is mostly capitalism kicking your ass and you feeling life in the system as a deficit being taken from you, the misery of others doesn't really mean anything to you because it's not your fault. You know? Like, it sucks that other people are uh, having it bad, but I'm having it bad. I don't feel bad about it because it's not my fault. If you are above a certain level of wealth, and I would put everybody who grew up in a suburb in the United States in the latter half of the 20th century in this basket, then you do think it's your fault because you have experienced life in America as a bounty, 
even if you have been alienated, even if your dad was a bricklayer, even if you had to work in a diner going to school, even if you work a job that does alienate you from your labor, you experience life in America as one of pleasures, of bountiful pleasures, because you deserve them. You're a good boy or girl. You did the right thing. You went up the meritocratic ladder and you got your treats. You were a good person in your politics. You were virtuous in your behavior. And you were uh, skilled at your uh, job. Uh, And you were attentive at school. You were all the good things. Congratulations. That means that you feel responsible. Because it is your fucking fault. Not the way that you feel it emotionally, but abstractly, like stripped of emotion. It is, of course, it's your fault. It's the fault of all of us. It's the fault of the people who are under uh, the whip, too, because nobody's fighting back. And it's not our fault we're not because we don't know what to do because we are late to the race. The fight already happened. Our champion lay on the battlefield, the working class. Born, let's say, 1848 with the Communist Manifesto, died in 1989. Let's say that. And, the, and, the, and the, that history, that world history is a history of the, of the global working class at war with capitalism. Not even the capitalists. They're basically along for the ride. They were too stupid to know their own best interest because they were too invested in their fantasy land because they wanted to keep it. And that is the problem with having a left that is dominated by middle-class people is because at the end of the day, at a level deeper than politics, they want to keep their relationship to a system that benefits them. And that puts them at odds with people who see politics and through the social order alienated and want to destroy it. And that means they can only ever be the tail end of a working class party made up of people who are acting out of self-interest, collective self-interest, because they know this thing isn't good for them. It breaks through all the fucking propaganda because they have their own propaganda made by their own organs, their labor unions, their beer halls, their sports organizations, their militias, their newspapers, their political parties. Their vaudeville shows, their popular culture, their songs, their votes, their participation in organs of government. And they did it, first in Europe, but then all over the world. They did it wherever they lived. They did it according to the conditions they lived under. And that was its undoing. The combined and uneven nature of capitalist development meant that the working classes of Europe and then the whole world would achieve self-conscious class character at different historical moments with different conditions. And therefore, they would be operating under assumptions tailored to different conditions. Like, for example, the um, working class of 
The working class movement in every European country is not made up of the working class. It is made up of a coalition of workers, uh, a segment of the small bourgeois, and a section of uh, morally motivated class traders. That's true in every European country. It's true of basically every, I can't think of one that isn't like that. I mean, maybe some of the, you know, places where it, it developed latest. But in Europe, under those conditions, the uh, breakup of the old feudal order and the reemergence of a capitalist class relationship, it is a coalition of these two forces. And what that means in Germany is that with a place where, in a place where capitalism has, is most developed, is as developed as it is anywhere in the world. It's like there and you, you, the low countries and uh, England are it in the world. You're going to see a, a situation dominated. Uh, by the at first by the uh, middle part of that by the energetic coffee house set uh, displaced artisans small business owners who still thought of themselves as artisans and not as capitalists which was many of them it was most of them at that point um, coffee house coffee house intellectuals you know the 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 uh, the uh, neo priestly class of uh, of like academic intellectuals and uh, and uh, cultural creators, the new Bohemians, they made that thing, and it developed a lot, and it developed its understanding of what communism was going to mean in practice by doing it in those conditions. Now, at the same time, that's happening. Oh, oh, so over time, though. Uh, the pressure from below on the system and the existence of these complicated uh, and, and really sophisticated structures of uh, class uh, po- political expression, like the Social Democratic Party, like all the thinkers, all the smartest fucking thinkers about communism and socialism were German. And they and the German language became the language of socialism, really. And that meant that. Uh, the corresponding uh, people who filled out those cafe classes became sheep dipped in the shit. Like they, they got conditioned with it. Uh, people who might've otherwise been like uh, sentimental bourgeois liberals became communist radicals because of how convincing and clear eyed German uh, communist uh, thought was because of the advanced conditions of capitalism in Germany. They could all sit on their asses and do that. And you still had relatively prosperous uh, uh, yeomen in the countryside and these uh, downwardly mobile artisans in the cities all living together. And so 48 is a coalition between these, the working class and the, uh, the political class made up discreetly of downwardly mobile uh, uh, ruling class and <clears throat> bourgeois and, and uh, bohemians. 
but the energy and the power was with the uh, upper because the, there was barely a working class yet. Most of those people who were workers thought of themselves really as, uh, as artisans or as farmers or as Germans as an overlapping term now being created out of 19th century developments of capitalism, the, the cultural developments of capitalism. And it pursues power in its understanding of the world, right? And what that means is, is that as it approaches, as European capitalism approaches its contradictory explosion, as the closed system of European capitalism uh, uh, and expressed through the colonial conquest of the world proved incapable of uh, dealing with the material conditions, the array of technology and um, natural resources, basically, like the, the biome. Those things came into vital conflict in the early 19th, 20th century. We saw an, a, a massive conf- explosion over the over this as the system of capitalism failed to account for this new morality and destroyed itself but was not destroyed completely because it had become this new higher phase of capitalism headquartered in the United States that created for the first time a global organism of technologically uh expressed capitalism So the working class is just part of a struggle but that is still live between these European capital formations. And it is and World War 1 and 2, the the Bolshevik revolution and then and then the the rise of the Nazis and then the final uh uh culminated cumulative uh Armageddon are those forces unable to c- cope with crisis internally destroying themselves by bashing each other uh, one against one another in a terminal frenzy because they are incapable of uh, representing a rational understanding of humanity as a goddamn species and our conditions of labor being the closest thing we can find to a self-interest that can bind us. Therefore, the working class should be in the driver's seat of this fucking thing. Now, the Soviet Union was the closest thing we had, but it wasn't enough. And the reason for that is that because Russia is not Germany, because Germany, one of these places where capitalism is born, uh, like the, the fucking, the counting houses of, uh, of uh, the Rhineland are like, they're happening at the same time and are just as developed as Venetian uh, machineries of, of trade. And they develop their their uh, their working class movement, and it becomes. I would argue that it becomes its own thing with the eventual legalization of the Socialist Party in the 1880s. That is the recognition by capital in the form of the Hohenzollerns and Bismarck that they could not deal with the coordinated and effective resistance of the working class. They wouldn't let them do their job, so they had to give them something, and so they gave them a say. And what that meant was downward redistribution, redistribution of surplus. So that 
you're still getting exploited, but not as much. And the difference feels good. The difference feels good. And that is how capitalism stabilizes itself. But it can only do it in the United States because of free real estate. Europe can't do it. The countries of Europe are stuck. They have to destroy themselves. They have to be annihilated. They can have to wield the destruction of machinery to try to grab the thing through the force of arms that cannot happen because technology is too advanced. So you have... Oh, shit. So what that means then is that the socialist movement that is also happening in Russia at the exact same time is happening in a condition that is essentially medieval. Germany had been developing capitalism since the Black Death, the 13 fucking hundreds. Russia had had capitalism dropped in its lap in the mid-19th century and was used by a uh, a medieval just uh, ruling elite, a totally land-based ruling elite, only to the extent that it would allow them to compete with the other states. And that meant that because there's so far to go and development was so much behind in Russia – when World War I happens and drops the question of, okay, how are we going to uh, deal with the contradictions of capitalism in everyone's lap? Because Russia is doing this. Russia is fighting this war because they're now in a global capitalist world system. They are now hooked to this fucking thing. And that means they have to fight this war with a medieval society. And that creates the same crisis of capital, of a, a crisis within capitalism that destroys the social fabric as blows up the rest of Europe. But when World War II, World War I really gets bad and the, the, the order is fully delegitimized in Germany, the working class is represented by a social democratic party and labor movement, labor union movement that has been bourgeoisified, that is made up of people who benefit from the system, made up of people who live their lives unalienated, relative to those who work, people who think deeper than their politics that the system, as they understand it, needs to be preserved. The superstructural fantasy land needs to be preserved. The thing that makes us associate our pleasure, our bodily pleasure, with the exploitation of others needs to be preserved. And so that means that when the workers, the alienated workers of the country are ready to take power, they fucking snuff them out. They fucking get all the psychos from the Western Front they can find, give them bayonets, and set them loose on Red Cross nurses. But in Russia, you've got the inert mass of the peasantry, who is now mobilized mostly as peasant conscripts in the army, who are then brought back to serve in the cities. You've got a very thin layer of work of middle-class uh, uh, bourgeois types, a sliver of merchants, a fragment of academics and coffee house types. And then this Romanov family and hangers on the, a, 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 a skeletal machinery that is held together 
by the pre-modern technology of fucking religion. These motherfuckers really believe that the czar speaks for God, for fuck's sake. Now, Europeans don't, but that's because they had modernity fucking tear their shit up for the last 300 years. What that means is, is that when they build a socialist party, a socialist movement that is like theoretically correct, the one that gets what Marx was saying most, the one that grasps the intellectual project the most, it's clearly the Bolsheviks. Lenin is the guy who got what Marx was talking about. But in a Marx, in a Leninist, in the context of Russia, where he assumed the point was to seize power for yourself. Because I am too committed to the cause to let capitalism win in Russia. I am too associated with being a good person. I have too much associated my sense of self-worth with being the one who makes everything better for everybody. I want to assuage my guilt so much that I need to be the one to fix all this. It's got to be me. And Lenin was the one who got that. And that's what made him win. The reason he won is because there was no fucking middle class, uh, middle classification of the working workers movement in Russia. It had barely been formed. It was in its mass form. It was huge processions of workers staging fucking spontaneous walkout strikes every goddamn day in 1917. And they were there to fucking fight for what they understood to be their best interest, the overthrow of the fucking czar. Now, progressive, the, the, pro, the, the, pro, the, the movement of history says, okay, what they want is the efficiency of capitalism. They want to give a steam belt to this misery in the form of allowing the most socialized of these people to enjoy life a little more. At the bottom of the peasant uh, barrel, you're fucked. You'll be fucked forever, but it doesn't matter. You have no social uh, autonomy. You cannot speak for yourself. You're off the board. These people in the cities, these people who can read and write, these people who take jobs that we need to keep this thing moving, these motherfuckers, these guys are an actual threat to us. That means they have to be dealt with with some degree of coercion and enticement. And World War I was the crisis because it was when this fucking carrot went away, when the enticement went away. And when the absence of that uh, power can no longer be uh, asserted, and that is why the uh, troops refused to fire on the protesters. That's why the February Revolution happened. It's because the troops wouldn't fire. It often comes down to will the troops pull the trigger. And that comes down to if they're hungry or not. It comes down to if you're hungry or not. And they were hungry. They were hungry. Uh, And the people who mattered uh, in Germany weren't. Because remember, because Germany is a more sophisticated social organism, it can't just be the pressure from below. You need to use the machinery that exists. You, you, You have to seize power. You have to seek the state. 
like fucking Lenin talks about. You have to grab the thing that moves the thing because that is all that power is. The thing is, is that that prescription for seizing power is if you are, as the Germans were when they came up with the shit, at the advanced edge of capitalist development, which Germany was. Marxism is a blueprint for the German ruling, the German working class seizing power. It couldn't be anything other than that. It's not a failure on his part. He is positioned historically. He is in a space and time that limits his ability to conceive of certain things. He just can't do it. They haven't been formed yet. History has to unfold. So that was, and so Lenin's genius was his, and, and what is his genius, but his, his latching of his will and his mind to the point, to the fixed star of the logical conclusion of the Marxist uh, theory of history that he operated from. He succeeded because there was no, there was no fucking surplus to go around in Russia. Capitalism had not yet created the situation where efficiency had trickled down. So there was no consent to the state. And that meant that the only, so that means you have a convulsion of the working class in the cities, even the fucking peasants, like the more shit together organized peasants in the countryside, like, you know, the ones who came together to support the S social revolutionaries, they're actually like pushing forward. But the ones who are going to be able to seize power are the ones who, are clearest in understanding the situation, the ones who have doctrine that is the most well-honed. And that is the party led not by workers, but by guys sitting in rooms thinking about it all the time. And that's the Bolsheviks. The leadership of the Bolshevik party, no matter what their conditions of birth, their conditions of living as Bolsheviks were as members of that coffee house, surplus enjoying Elite. They were all in practice. They were poor a lot of the times, but they weren't poor and dug ditches. They weren't poor and uh, begged for food. They weren't poor and went to the fucking almshouse. They were poor and they were newspaper editors. They were poor and uh, they were teachers. And then there were guys like Stalin who were fucking gangsters, which is awesome. That's as unalienated as a life as you can imagine. Be fucking robbing from the rich and feeling, robbing from people and feeling good about it. Getting to blow up a fucking trainload of the czar's uh, uh, Cossacks to steal a bunch of fucking loot from a uh, bank train, robbing an armored car, basically, like fucking, uh, like you're in Den of Thieves. Like you're Pablo Schreiber and feeling like you're doing the, the, you're fulfilling the role of history and you're bringing about the, the end of misery on earth. My God, that's the most fun you can have. They were not workers. There were working Bolsheviks, but they were working and they came into positions of influence and authority during the uh, struggle for power in 1917, but they were never the fucking vanguard. And crucially, and I think, Isaac Deutscher makes this point 
most lucidly in his book, his uh, biographies of Trotsky, there definitely was a working class led Bolshevik party that seized power in 1917. Like I'm saying, yes, the leadership, the leadership of this organization, yes, are petty bourgeois in their lives, in their self-conceptions, their relationship to the surplus of capitalism. But they are constrained by genuine democratic organs of power that are directed by a working class base. The way I think that Lenin was correct, the party as it existed in 1917, the party that seized power was a working class party. As it should have emerged, as the right doctrine and approach to history should have emerged in that moment in time. And it only won, though, because its opposition was so non-existent. There was a barely any co-opted socialist movement. There sure shit wasn't a social democratic party that was loyal to fucking uh, capitalism. Like, there was nobody to tell them what to do except their fucking base. They did what the base wanted them to do. They were running behind the workers for most of it. Um, I mean, Lenin kicked things into gear when he came back in April, but the uh, the July uprising happens not because the Soviets want, the Bolsheviks wanted it to, but because the fucking workers and peasants were so riled up and ready to fucking actually seize power that they were threatening to stage their own fucking coup. And the leadership had to like chase behind them and like limit the, the exposure. And then they all fled and had to come back and disguise. Lenin had to go to Finland wearing a fucking fake mustache. And eventually in October, there was sufficient unanimity and co- cooperation at the top and will at the bottom to make it happen. But then the war, then the war came as the December said, then the civil war basically destroys the Russian working class. There are now, there are Russian workers, but these are just peasants being pulled into the cities. And um, <clears throat> most of those workers who had filled the administrative roles at the, at the grassroots of the, of the, and even in the leadership of the party, they were now either professional politicians and bureaucrats or they were dead. So now you have a post-war Bolshevik party that sees itself as moving history forward at the expense of the vast majority of people in that country. And there was nothing else to do but do capitalism's work, even though Marxist theory of seizing power in Germany makes capitalism do all the dirty work first. Capitalism already fucking did it. Capitalism did it with the fucking putting, putting down the peasants' revolt. Capitalism did it with the um the 30 years war capitalism did it with the um uh <clears throat> capitalism did it with the wars of religion capitalism did it with the uh the, the spanish war of independence capitalism did it with um the american war of independence and the french revolution and the fucking uh, paris commune That work was for capitalism, for a state to emerge from this process that has the legitimacy of the people it seeks to rule, the participation, the faith. You can't do that to that many people. Can't do it. 
Math doesn't work. The only guy who got that was Bukharin, who, from my mind, is the most correct socialist, the guy who I think is where Lenin would have been if Lenin had not died. And honestly, I think Lenin's head exploded because he couldn't handle the contradiction of being Bukharin. I think he knew, he was smart enough to know that he would have had to have been Bukharin. And he was so committed to his identity as the guy who wins the thing that he blew his own brains out. His skull exploded because he was too invested, not in the revolution, but in his bourgeois health conception. Why? Because he spent his life as a bourgeois. Not his fault. He should be guided in his actions by a democratic Bolshevik party, but it was gone. It was supposed to hook up with the advanced German working class party and have a world revolution. And then that didn't happen. And the, and the working class party post 1924 is a, is a, um, it is a death spasm by a working class that will emerge in other countries at different times, but too late. Too late to seize power because the tower has been hoarded at this point. A technological bubble around the power now rests in D.C. and NYC and San Francisco in on servers and in fucking uh, dumbs bunkers. And God bless Bukharin. I guess he was the guy who was a little more zen about the whole thing, who had detached himself from himself a little bit more because Bukharin the guy who during the uh, Brest-Litovsk uh, negotiation was the only was the one who said, well, he wasn't the only one, but he was the leader of those who said, we need to come and keep fighting the war as a revolutionary war. Now, Lenin was right that they couldn't do that and maintain power. But Bukharin understood them holding power was not the point. The working class taking power was the point. For Lenin, it was too deep an identification. The Bolshevik Party, him, were the working class. And that was good to get him to one point. But then when conditions changed, he couldn't change with, with them. And that is why all class societies die, because they cannot change with conditions. And Lenin was a good enough guy. I do think he was a good person, like in the sense that he was in harmony with the universe. To be horrified and to not be able to imagine doing what Stalin in his heart, knew had to be done and what Trotsky was afraid of but still understood would be necessary if they didn't win. So with this new reality in, in, in force, the genius, the most brilliant one of all of them, the guy who had pulled them all along with him like a fucking meteor through history, he's like the, the Bolshevik party really is. Like fucking Lenin is a meteor and they are all just in the fucking tailing. Like he, he is one of the most indispensable men of history. If he does not come back to the Finland station, the Bolsheviks don't take power. I'm not the only one who says, who thinks that. I believe that, um, I'm pretty sure China Mieville says this in October. Others have said it because the Bolsheviks were scattered and terrified because they didn't have the confidence to take power. Only Lenin had the confidence to take power because he was fully confident in himself. I am the party. The party is the working class. The working class is history. And the thing is, he was always right. 
He was always right. And when he was wrong, he was able to get back to right. Until he couldn't anymore. So when it's time to say, do we do a revolutionary war or do we end the war? Lenin makes the rational, pragmatic decision that's good for the Bolsheviks to negotiate Brest-Litovsk. But the fact is, is that this is now or never. This is a world revolution or it's the end of the working class movement. You cannot retreat from this. You will be defeated. Even if the odds are bad, even if most people would be mad, rhyming, I feel like I'm doing a a Bukhar and Hamilton now. Um, We have to do this. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it sparks a revolution in Germany. There was a revolution happening in Germany. Maybe it brings them together like magnets. Maybe it doesn't. But this is our role in this. Because capitalism or communism cannot come out of Russia. It can't. So we can either contribute to something or we can back away. And that's why after Lenin gets his way and there's Brest-Litovsk and the Civil War and you get to the post-war order and the creation of the post-war order in Europe and the creation of the, uh, the, re- the implication, the, imp- the um, a blockade, an economic blockade coming from the capitalist West. This is a terminal. This is a death spiral. The, 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 the Soviet Union is doomed from this point. So how is it going to go out? And Bukharin says you buy off the peasants. You reinstitute capitalism. You prove that we and Martov were both right in different ways. Martov was able to detach himself enough from the personal stakes of winning to recognize that the Russian working class wasn't ready. And the world revolution wasn't coming, which is the other part of it. Because Lenin might have, Lenin and Trotsky would probably have agreed with the first part. But they would have said, no, but they're going to win in Germany. Martov got both ends of the puzzle. Maybe for self-interested reasons, probably also for self-interested reasons. But he was fundamentally correct. When they blew past that stop sign, the next move is you fucking go to war. You go to revolutionary war. And when that's off the table, Bukharin alone at the table after the war says, we got to buy him off. And of course, Trotsky is horrified by this. Trotsky knows what that means. Trotsky doesn't want to give up on the world war, even though it was off the table by that point. Revolution is off the table at that point. The revolution is not possible now. It is, it is, you are now just pissing in the wind and hoping for the, the fucking, for it to change direction because we still have to do something here. We cannot wait forever. The, the fucking rest of the world is there crushing us. Our legitimacy is, is colum- collapsing. Our ability to govern is being undermined. What, what do we do? What do we do? And the only answer, There are only two answers. There is Bukharin's answer, which sacrifices the Bolshevik project, but maybe advances the fucking project of reconstituting some working class movement to fight the collapse of capitalism instead of the broken saber we find ourselves with now. (laughs) 
But because this was a, at this point a bourgeois party that was addicted to its position within a capitalist, a greater capitalist world system that they were still participating in and were going to have to carry out, they couldn't counsel it. So Bukharin goes down. And who emerges from this? None of these fucking intellectuals, none of these coffee house bitches, none of these people who think that they benefit from the system and feel therefore guilty about participating in it. You got a guy who is fully alienated from the system, a sociopathic lumpen proletarian gangster who is the other part of who is going to be a part of any left wing coalition. You have the lumpen proletariat uh, remnants like him, the gang, the social bandits. You have the uh, you have the advanced peasantry, uh, and you have the working class, and then you have uh, the advanced progressive uh, bourgeois. And he did not come from those backgrounds, and he didn't live that life. He wrote some things, he did some editing, but he was a fucking prisoner and a gangster. Which means his conception of self-interest, his conception of what socialism is, is going to be not the same thing as those elevated people. Because what makes socialism um, powerful is that it has an appeal to everyone at every level that unites the personal and the experiential uh, and the social And for people who have benefited from the system, they understand other people as like them because the pleasure that they have in the world, they are able to, because they're smart, think around the programming of and say, oh, no, look, there is something else. Or they have religious sentiment or something. They have something that transcends the programming. I don't know, man. Stalin's dad was an itinerant what, uh, like a hostler or something like, uh, who was barely home and beat the shit out of him. You run around, he ran around with hooligans, got kicked out of seminary. What I'm saying is that when he comes to communism, he is coming in as somebody who has had the faith in others kicked the fuck out of him. Those coddled, Smarty pantses like Lenin and Trotsky don't have that experience. There you have pleasure in life that they connect to other people. They are motivated. They are motivated spiritually by connections to others that they have reasoned themselves to. Now, there are working class people. There are peasants. There are lumpen. There's everybody who feels that as an overwhelming connection. But they're doing it in the face of their conditioning. And the more you're hurt, the harder it is to overcome it. And he's going to be part of any of your movement, but he should not embody it. He's only embodying it because you've lost. Because it's not a working class movement anymore. It's a movement of a party. It's a movement of people who sit in offices. Those are the people who make the decisions that matter. Those are the ones who write the rules that determine whose voice counts for what.
I mean, I, if the if the working class isn't broken by the civil war and maintains its position, I think you get Bukharin winning out. Because because the party was at that point completely dominated by the neuroses of the exploiter in a class society, which is not capitalism like they think it is. It is fucking feudalism. They're going to have a techno-feudal relationship to their peasants who are people. That means when the crisis comes, when it's no longer sustainable internally in the 70s and 80s, after the brief, like everybody spiked in the 50s, everybody. Khrushchev's vision of, of outpacing the U.S. as a consumer society actually had something going for it in the 50s. There was forward momentum. They were making progress on um, significant advances in um, uh, uh, technological planning and central planning through computer power. The book Red Plenty is very good about this. They hit, a, they hit the limits. Just the same time we did. And our mixed economy, our buy-off structure, our, our social democracy, our, our imperial order, let's put it that way. It's a social democracy in the interior, in, in the center and at the periphery, it is just an extraction machine. It's the same colonial machinery that the uh, pre-democratic order had. You have the, the 19th century capitalism being just the point of a spear with a fucking aristocrat on the other end. You have a social order with the spear after World War II, both in Europe but all throughout the world. It breaks up around the same time. And the, and the Soviets break up earlier because they're less efficient. They're a little rump thing. They're, they're a smaller chunk. They have less advanced technology because of the less because they don't have capitalism's internal efficiencies. Out you go. But now it came for us too. We just bought it off by abstracting out some more of the economy, creating more profit centers and profit lanes to fill in for the declining rate of profit. But they're still in a terminal decline. The only thing that could have met this is if by the 70s, the working class had won. If whatever, whatever amount of people in whatever fragment were left, whether the result of a nuclear war in the Cold War or um, a triumphant German revolution in the, um, in the, uh, 18, uh, in the, in the uh, 1819, 1817, uh, an American revolution that, that fulfills its destiny after the Civil War, like any kind of counterfactual you want to imagine, you're still going to have industrial civilization hitting the fucking iceberg of uh, biome, biological limits at the same time. And if we had a social organism asserting power over our technological mechanisms, we would be in... Some we would be pursuing homeostasis and there would be a future and we could all imagine ourselves participating in as part of that future and therefore putting off some of those pleasures, therefore orienting our politics more um, 
altruistically and acting more altruistically individually. Being active politically outside of voting, reducing engagement in spectacle and increasing it in doing anything and building bonds with others, just building bonds. That's literally all it is. Building social connections that can overcome the conditioning of how we're made to interact with each other every day, to follow the pellet trail of misery on the hedonic treadmill. And of course, this does read as a defensive dengism. And you know what? God damn it, maybe it is. Maybe I have finally become dengpilled. And you can, I mean, obviously, it's not just because these guys are geniuses. It's not because Deng is no Lenin. You know, none of them, are, we're all, dis, we're not even our, we don't, you know, it's like we're not our fathers, Lou, or whatever it is from uh, Dog, uh, Dog of the South. We're not our fathers, Dupree. We don't even look like them. Everybody, like, there's an age of heroes, and then there's a bunch of schmucks. Always. So Deng is no Mao. He's no, um, He's no Lenin. I mean, it's like Mao is no Lenin, honestly. Like, it is a decline because conditions change. Uh, our being the, the intensification of capitalism changes. Our ability to resist it changes. And then after the defeat of the working class in the 20th century, everybody is at sea. Like, none of those guys, none of the ones who fell or the ones who made deals did the right thing. The closest, of course, is Castro, which means Castro is... He is the guy, he's the kid in the uh, arcade who just played the longest. Like he kept ahead of the, of the, of uh, Pac-Man better than anybody. And I'm sure Deng was more motivated by the greater national project that underlined and I think in many ways defined Chinese communism. I'm sorry. Like it is based on Chinese nationalism. And that's because of the, Specific historical context of Chinese communism. Chinese communism happens later than even Russian communism in a context of colonial exploitation by other powers, which Russia did not have. So that means the two pimps. All right. So that means we can we can boil it down to two pimps of the post-Soviet crisis era. Pimp one, Deng Xiaoping. Pimp two, Fidel Castro. What is the difference between these two pimps? I would argue this. It is that the Chinese Communist Party uh, did the Great Leap Forward. And the Cuban Communist Party taught everybody how to read. That's the difference. It has nothing to do with themselves and their virtues and their, the way that they read politics and their individual abilities. Because of the way it emerged, because of when, commun- when uh, a working class political movement expressed itself, when like the working class expression of modernity developed, it did so in this, this uh, context of like a totally feudal, I mean, I'm sorry, a totally agrarian society of like largely small freeholders and um, dispossessed rural proletariat dominated by foreign countries. 
And that means they had to do maternity at the point of a gun. They had to have all those bodies on their fucking record, which means that they don't have the fucking uh, social um, buy-in from the population to ask for the kind of actual discomfort and suffering that keeping communism would have required. They had to buy them off. And by them, I mean the ones closest to power, the workers, the emerging bourgeois, the emerging counterculture uh, uh, um, bureaucrats, the people who sit on their ass all day. They had to buy off the people sitting on their ass all day because they had not earned any faith because of what the party had had to do because of when it had seized power and the country where it had seized power. Castro takes power in a country that is dominated by a foreign country, which means that nationalism is in alignment with socialism. So that all that national feeling that animates people because of the superstructure they're living in, their resentment of of foreign power, it's all also connected to their nationalism, which means their anti-capitalism is connected to their their nationalism. These things are no longer in conflict with one another. When they are, you get fascism. When you get people associating fascism, uh, or when you get people associating uh, capitalism through a national frame, if it is not grounded in a working movement, it is fascism. And that can only come, though, in an imperial context. When you have been the conquered, it can't. When you've been the occupied, it can't do that. You're inoculated against it. You have taken the Invermectin. And that was the power of the post-war third world nationalist movements, is that they were they had these two things overlapping. But then they were suffocated by the West. But the party that Castro had built was so supple and such a uh, seamless machinery of democratic accountability and executive function that in power it was able to benefit people immediately. The demands of the people were met at the top, and because the American attempts to destroy it failed, they were able to move forward, even under conditions of embargo. And those conditions of embargo created a situation where as the state builds, as the machinery of, uh, you know, extracting raw, uh, extracting alienated labor from workers in like the sugar industry is not experienced as exploitation by the workers. What makes them not feel it that way? If they feel like they're getting something for it. And because of the ability to coordinate these structures, uh, bureaucratically, the party and Castro actually give people what they want. And it's because nobody is getting rich in the middle. And the fact that they were embargoed for so long made that happen. Nixon op- opening China basically doomed the Chinese Communist Party. Because, uh, because, or at least it gave them an out. I would say that. They were doomed anyway after uh, the Cultural Revolution. That was, the, that was it. Uh, what The reaction was inevitable after that. Uh, because that was that was the end of the uh, that was the end of the legitimacy of the Chinese state. Um, 
it had to have a new footing and it was either going to be treats or sacrifice. And after the fucking cultural revolution and the great leap forward, it couldn't be treats. Or I mean, it couldn't be sacrifice. It had to be treats. But Castro, when the crisis came, when the special period happened after the fall of the Russians and the end of the, uh, of the subsidy that they were receiving, they could actually pitch austerity on people and they would accept it. Now, of course, a lot of people left who were like, fuck this. Um, but enough people stayed that they didn't have to do a massive crackdown. I mean, of course, they cracked down. There was more violence. There's violence because there's crime. There's crime because at the end, the pain is so much that you can't get out along with it because you can't be helped because there's nothing to go around because the system cannot is, um, effectively utilize resources because it is still being constricted by capitalism. So alone among communist states, Cuba was able to get people who needed to stay there, needed to man the machinery of the state, needed to man the machinery of uh, government and uh, the, the army and uh, the civil society uh, and uh, in, in the fields, in the, in, the, in the cane fields and in the factories. And he didn't have any treats to give them, and they still did it because they associated the state with the good things in their life. And that is why Cuba stands alone now, always under threat, always undermined by its material uh, scarcity that it has to endure. But again, that's not communism. This is the last fragment we have after the thing died. And it's one of the things that we can build on in the future. And it boils down to this, that a working class movement in a given uh, locality, like a state, like a national or a state working class movement, uh, is no longer viable uh, when it is no longer a working class uh, party. And I would say that you don't get to the answer to what, what makes it that by studying the compositions. You study the uh, center of gravity. Where are actual decisions being made? And I think that there is an argument to be made that real decisions are made in the working class movements uh, of all of the Western powers and in the ones uh, in the uh, exploited late, cap- late, con- late contacted world, the last people to contact capitalism, who get you know, the thing at the very late, at the very end of days, you know, it's like Russia 4.0, which means they're that much less uh, func- able to, uh, you know, uh, maintain legitimacy without uh, brutalizing people. Okay, so that means that China, I'm sorry, uh, all we can hope is that it beats the United States because it will only leave maybe some fragments that can be picked up and uh, rearranged by those who come later. Not worth 
getting too riled up. But definitely, we want more of what they have built right now and what they're building right now to uh, to be remembered than what we're building. Because we're at the end of this thing. We are the snake eating. Right now, capitalism is the snake eating its tail, and we are the head of the snake. And, and, and China is like the embodiment of uh, the late contacted peoples of the world. The third world, as Mao imagined it. Those people who did not develop capitalism internally as the states of Europe did, but that had it imposed on them externally to form the Wallensteinian world system. I don't think that China can, uh, can do it internally. I know some people can. I know some people do. And the thing is, this is one of those questions where uh, you, can, you know when to stop arguing because it doesn't matter either way. This stuff only matters to the degree that informs your actions. Whether uh, the Chinese state is capable of managing its internal contradictions uh, to uh, create some sort of post-capitalist basis for uh, a, a technological, uh, uh, technologically facilitated uh, move towards homeostasis, you act the, you, your relationship to China is the same as if you think that it can't. Because they're the good guys against America. And you don't have anything you can do about the fight either way. It's like a kaiju battle. Like you can root for somebody, but that's it. At the end of the day, it's like you're watching robot jocks just mellow out. It doesn't matter that much. You got shit to do here. So once again, China, the question. If it's robot jocks, if it's uh, <clears throat> rock'em, sock'em robots, I am rooting for the Chinese robot. But that's all I'm doing. And I think that, I do think that thinking of it that way changes the way you act about it. It means you're less invested in arguing about it, I would imagine. Maybe some, not if you're a pure, you know, erotic pol political object, but if that's the case, you've solved everything. Congratulations. You're a maximal, you, you've, you've rewired your brain. And some people have probably done that and more power to them. But then just have, go fun, have nuts. Have fun, go nuts. But if you're not being, if it's not making you happy, that is why. That's all I'm going to say. Indeed, congratulations. You played yourself. Okay. <clears throat> wow. I got horse there. I hope that made sense. It felt pretty good. I feel like I got something there. I feel like, uh, but it also might be total insane bullshit. Like I said, I'm going to have to like play the tape back and then I'll like say what's canon and isn't. All right, guys, peace out. Peace and chicken grease.